This is In the Trenches, Broadcast 63. Welcome to In the Trenches, where entrepreneurs, artists, writers, designers, inventors, warriors, and leaders share their stories of doing the hard, creative work that impacts all of our lives. Let the journey inspire you to do something worthwhile. Build something bold and create your life's work. And now, your host, Tom Morgus. Hey everyone, welcome back to another broadcast of In the Trenches. I'm very excited to have on today's call a good friend of mine, Tyson Adam. And Tyson is the co-founder of Zuda Organic and the founder of Jai Coffee House. And in both businesses, Tyson is combining his passion both for philanthropy and entrepreneurship to create some really terrific results, including uh, starting several uh, education and clean water projects in Laos for the past three years. And he's actually getting ready to go back to Laos to continue um, these initiatives, which is pretty crazy. And we'll dig into that uh, during the interview. But uh, yeah, I just want to say, Tyson, thank you so much for being on the call with us today. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I definitely want to dig into both Zuda and, and Jai, but uh, let's take us back a little bit. Um, where, where are you from, and then how, what led you to kind of pursuing um, entrepreneurship, and, and specifically kind of social entrepreneurship, which I guess this might be labeled as? Yeah, so my journey goes back. Um, I'm from Seattle. I went to the University of Washington, and then uh, I actually left um, on a one-way plane ticket to Southeast Asia uh, eight years ago. Um, and had really no intention of uh, coming back for a year. Um, but I, I ended up only staying for four months because this concept of creating a social coffee business uh, actually came of that trip. So in those first four months, I did Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. Um, and really, the story is an interesting one because even now today when I uh, reflect on it, it actually all stemmed from a dream that I had where I was actually... Um, sitting on a cabana overlooking the Mekong River and I uh, had a cup of coffee. Uh, actually, it was an espresso. And after it wore off, I fell asleep and I woke up and I had this crazy idea of importing Lao uh, coffee to America and selling it uh, and then providing education uh, support and uh, education supplies in the form of books back to the coffee growing community uh, and specifically the children in the schools that are growing the coffee. So I did it, and uh, that's kind of the beginning of my eight-year adventure with all of these projects. Okay, so what year was that, that you actually did the, uh, the first kind of Southeast Asian tour? Um, let's see, so it's 2015, so it would have been about 2008 going into 2009. Cool, and yeah. so you did that for four months, you came back, you're like, I had this idea, and then now what? Yeah, so I basically just rented my motorbike and drove into the jungle and met a community of coffee farmers that there was only one guy that spoke English, got some coffee samples, brought it back to America, and then I decided I was going to do something with it. So uh, in my dream, I actually had seen this vision of building a coffee stand uh, where um, (laughs) you would drive up and you would buy coffee, but you would also be watching a digital video of that particular village and the community and you would know that your purchase would be supporting them. Um, But when I got back to Seattle, I realized that not only is it quite expensive to start a coffee stand and build one, but also to find and find uh, the property to, you know, pay rent to have that. So I decided 
on a very different model, which was a coffee fundraising model, where I basically did coffee fundraisers for schools, um, NGOs, uh, and organizations needing to fundraise. And so I would basically uh, do uh, their own label. So let's say a high school basketball team would get their own coffee, um, or their own high school, let's say, basketball team uh, label. We would also... Uh, so we would sell the coffee to them for uh, $10 and then they would sell it for $20. So they would make $10 a bag and then we would take a dollar of profits and then buy a book and put it back into circulation um, in those communities over in Laos. So that was kind of the beginning of everything. Cool. So just for for my own sake, because I'm curious about this, how you actually did this little piece of it. So would, would, would you call this kind of like a white labeling type thing or how did... Like from a, a, a practical standpoint of you, you, so you imported and then you, and then, so how did that work from a, I guess from a, um, a logistics standpoint too? Yeah, it was similar to a white label. So basically we all, you know, all these schools, they are fundraising and they need new fundraisers and uh, most of the fundraisers are, you know, quite boring or, you know, very uh, conventional. So what I decided to do is just to say, okay, I got a great graphic designer. We'll make a beautiful label for you. Uh, go sell that coffee into, into your own community, but just know that by using us, your fundraiser, instead of magazines or some other company, you're also supporting this community back in Laos. Um, and so then I would take a dollar out of our profits and put it back into the community by buying books, if that's more cool. Clear. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So now, so you started, the, and how long did you do this for before it kind of evolved to, I guess, more of what it is today, where it's actually like, um, yeah. You're, you're growing in Laos, you're living there, you built a coffee shop. Like, tell me about that. Yeah, so the transition was basically running that um, and completing 50 fundraisers over a course of about a year, um, putting 5,000 books into circulation, and then forming a nonprofit during that time because I saw that there were all these other issues that were happening centered around clean water and hygiene. Um, it happens to be in Laos that diarrhea and pneumonia are number one and number two killers of Lao children. So I started to basically notice that books were not really as essential as basic healthcare related um, provisions. And so by forming that nonprofit, I was able to start to address some of these other issues, which was the water specifically. And so uh, on, I think my third trip, I was able to raise, um, I think at the time it was pretty cheap. It was around 1200 US dollars to put in our first clean water well. And basically from that point forward, we kind of transitioned um, into uh, doing clean water and hygiene programs instead of doing books because uh, in Lao culture, the books weren't being utilized as well. They weren't being necessarily respected. And, and therefore, it was a little bit of a situation where there was wasted aid going into the community because they just didn't know how to implement them into their school systems because it's just so foreign to them. Um, but the clean water and the hygiene-related programs um, started to really show that they were being you know, well-utilized and we were able to um, get the communities as well to co-invest 15% into uh, the projects themselves. So that creates sustainability, creates a community involvement, and then they also manage the implementation of those wells. And so um, that's kind of when I thought to myself, okay, wow, this is really um, moving forward fast. Um, and uh, I applied, there's a community called the Misfits and uh, they're kind of a mobile consulting firm and they put out this contest, which was, you know, what would be your dream, um, uh, sort of dream kind of creation and we're going to fund one of these uh, operations by building you a website and helping you launch it. And so I applied to that contest 
which was about three years ago, and I won, and it was um, essentially a $50,000 consulting uh, prize where they basically helped me jumpstart this idea I had in my mind, which is called Jai Coffee House, um, which Jai Coffee House is really, I mean, to define it, it's the world's uh, first completely philanthropic coffee roaster. So we educate the coffee farmers, um, tourists flow through, we serve them roasted coffee and food, uh, and then we reinvest all the profits of the cafe back into clean water wells and hygiene programs in those communities. So that's kind of how that transition happened over time. Yeah, and that's awesome. I actually, AJ was one of the first guys I had on In the Trenches. In fact, he's the, the first episode, the first interviewee for In the Trenches. So it's awesome to talk to you about this because I remember when he was um, uh, holding that kind of uh, that that uh, t- that scholarship and getting yeah. these uh, requests. And I remember seeing yours come through and thinking that was really cool. And then to see it actually go all the way, which I feel like it seems like that's pretty rare. And then to actually succeed and still be operational is, is incredible. And then doing it in another country, in a third world country, that's, you know, I, I've been to Laos and, and the infrastructure isn't maybe the greatest. I mean, there's so many difficulties. Um, I, I just love seeing that. So tell me a little bit about like the logistics of going there in starting a business? Like, what was that like? Yeah, so in order to um, set up a cafe, we decided to crowdfund it. So I set up a Indiegogo and was able to raise $15,000 in 30 days, which was really the, the money necessary to go to um, Pakistan, where I had developed these relationships over a few years, um, and rent a basically an old house that was right in the center of town, renovate it into basically a beautiful art space is kind of how I see it. It's a little uh, beautiful abode in the middle of the jungle, and when tourists flow through there, they're often shocked that there's this really cool little funky cafe where they can hang out and use the internet and listen to good music and drink amazing coffee in the middle of the jungle. And... Um, yeah, it's become really kind of this sort of hub and uh, obviously lots of sacrifices had to have or were basically given up and giving up sort of my life in, in Seattle. But of course, now looking back on it, it was all worth it and it's still rolling. So, yeah. So during those times, like, you, I mean, the way you, you talk about it, I, I almost think like, oh, this this doesn't sound too bad. Like, I should just go start something and in another country and, and, and enjoy my, my, my life doing that. But I believe that there were some hardships. Can you tell us a little anything about maybe some of the, the ups and downs of, of going through this process? Yeah, I kind of skipped right over those, <laughs> but, uh, you don't have to dwell on them, but, but maybe a little, uh, you know, a little idea of kind of the, some of the challenges that, that come hand in hand with trying to do something like this that's important and uh, and and again kind of scary for people but I think it's important to know uh, some of the things that, that could possibly um, like where the challenges were where the struggles were yeah I kind of live by this quote um, it's a Krishnamurti quote and I love it and it is um, uh, the quote one is never afraid of the unknown one is afraid of the known coming to an end um, and the reason why that quote speaks so true to me is that um, often we think about um, moving to a foreign country or starting a business, uh, whether that's abroad or even in, you know, here in America. Uh, and that's what we think is the scary thing. But really, it's not. It's the letting go of your old, you know, customs and cultures and ways and family and friends. And so I think that, you know, to answer your question, the hardest thing is when you head over to this remote place in the middle of the jungle and you really don't have any Western community that's there that is permanent friends, you have to deal with 
you know, letting go of what your normal ways are and you have to let go of your uh, community. And I think that's the hardest thing, your, your eating habits, uh, your sleeping habits, your, uh, what you think is normal, what society projects on you is what you should be doing at your regular age. And I think that those are the hardest parts of that is, you know, accepting uh, this new journey that you feel a calling for that really society doesn't know how to handle that sort of thing. I mean, a lot of people are inspired by, inspired by it, but a lot of people also just can't even fathom doing that. So I think that was one, one thing. And then as far as just the practical things on the ground, you know, we had a couple of dogs and a cat died of rabies. That was emotionally a very, very stressful time. Uh, we had people that have stolen from us, um, workers that have stolen from us. We've, you know, I've seen lots of uh, animals and even people that have died. Um, and that's really a struggle because you're just not around that in Western culture. You can be very far removed from it. And so, yeah, there's a lot of ups and downs that, that the world shows you that you have to get used to over time. It's not for everybody, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So tell me a little bit about that. Like what, you know, when these things go, some of these things go wrong that are out of your control, how do you, how do you move on from that? Like what's your, what's your motto, what's your philosophy and how do you keep moving? Um, you know, I'm, I'm a fairly vulnerable person, and um, one of the ways in which I've healed from a lot of the struggle is being vulnerable through social media, being vulnerable with my community, and realizing that they're here for me and that they're supporting regardless of whether or not they're very far. Um, and then for me, I don't let things sort of boil up and stay inside. Um, I'm a pretty emotionally vulnerable kind of guy in that way as well in sort of letting emotion flow through me in the moment. So, and therefore we just push those emotions down, but you really have to kind of live very raw when you're over there on that side of the world. Yeah, definitely. So what, you know, you, you start this, it seems like a pretty, like, uh, uh, you know, again, every, every big major project, everything that's important. I think when you look at it from the outside and you look at the final final product or whatever the current iteration is, it seems kind of overwhelming. And I know you just take it a day at a time, but then you get to this point where it's, it seems like it's sustainable. It seems like things are going pretty well. Um, and then you go and you start another, another organization, another company. So tell me about Zuda and why you did that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that has happened over the last eight years is that I've gained a lot of, uh, creative, um, skills, whether that's building web sites or consulting for companies uh, who are running all kinds of different programs. And so I got really well-rounded because when you're living um, very frugally, you start to have to do everything on your own or get creative in, in the way in which you do work trades. So I developed enough skills where I felt like I had a very rounded entrepreneurial look at ways that I could create, you know, an income for myself where I wasn't trading hours for dollars because sitting behind a desk just doesn't work for me. Um, I always explain to people that for the last eight years I've been, you know, very time rich, but very financially poor. But in that process, it's helped me to understand what I am passionate about. And it's helped me to define and develop my skills that have now allowed me to set myself up for this, you know, this new venture. So the reason why it all began was, is that I've always been very curious. Um, I listened to Pat Flynn's, you know, smart passive income blog for a number of years. And I've always been curious about developing passive income streams so that I could live a flexible life where I didn't necessarily need to be dependent on a job. 
Um, and so what what ended up happening is, is that my first little project was I just wrote up an ebook on the health benefit of coconut oil because I um, experienced coconut oil a lot over in Thailand. Uh, really started to grow to like it, and uh, yeah, it, it you know it didn't do real well, but it, it you know basically produces about a thousand dollars a year for me, which is passive, and of course that's. No, not a lot, but it's. I sell the book for a dollar or for two dollars and fifty cents. So the reality is, is that I I was trying to dabble in passive income, um, you know, over the course of trying to live this entrepreneurial journey in 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 Laos, and then I realized that physical products are first and foremost where you can make the most money, but second of all, um, uh, I was in Bangkok and stumbled into a grocery store and found one of the most exquisite, beautiful, and top end. Uh, coconut oils that exist in the world. In fact, it likely is the best quality. So I thought to myself, okay, well, we have this huge organization in America called Amazon, and now they're global and they're doing very well. And they create this amazing platform to get, you know, consumables and um, grocery products out to people, you know, at their doorsteps now. And uh, I started looking into it and realizing that, you know, the number one selling coconut oil on Amazon sells 800 jars a day. You know, and calculating that out by how much profit they're making per jar, they're probably doing over a million and a half um, in profit, you know, per year. And so I looked at that and said, okay, well, even if I have a small piece of that, that's going to generate enough money for me to live day to day without needing to to collect a paycheck. So that's when I just started to become immersed in Amazon fulfillment and Amazon business. And uh, I've been basically studying it for two years, and now you know I'm about a month or two from launching that business, which is really exciting. Awesome. <clears throat> Excuse me. So tell me a little bit about your your plans then. A, a, you know, what, wh- how are you preparing then for that launch? Like what are your, what are your you know, b- both the plans and then also your goals? Like what do you want to see happen in the next six to 12 months with this? And then, you know, maybe if you go further in the future, like what are your ultimate objectives with, with this company and then with Jai and everything else you're doing? Yeah, so... Um, Right now, we're running a crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo. The goal is ten thousand, and we're now halfway in, and we're at seventy percent of the goal, so we're right around seven grand. Um, and really, the reason why we chose to crowdfund it uh, was um, because once we crowdfund it and we get product out to these, you know, these uh, backers, uh, we have a couple hundred backers. Those are our those are our Amazon reviews. So then we can transition those people directly into fulfilling via Amazon, um, have them leave us a review. And, uh, you know, as soon as we get to the first page of Amazon, which is around 300 or 400 reviews, um, then we'll be selling around 300 jars a day, you know? And so you're looking at roughly making around $1,500 a day. If we can get to the first page of Amazon, um, if you just launch into the Amazon platform, it's a slower process of getting reviews because you start at the bottom. But if you launch with a bang and you launch with a huge amount of reviews, then you can basically get to the to the top fast. Uh, and then from there, you can grow pretty rapidly and uh, kind of establish your place in that market. Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of why we chose to crowdfund. Uh, and then, of course, there's also the sort of the brand building and uh, the social media elements that go into that, building out the Facebook, the Instagram, the Twitter. Then you have a community that's telling your story for you. You get, you know, one really uh, important person or celebrity that tries it and, uh, they post about it and you can, you know, you can uh, essentially accelerate very quickly. So that's why really now the sort of 
social media and crowdfunding platform was uh, uh, our choice. And then, yeah. you know, as far as like your your second part of your question, you know, how does that relate into to, to Jai? I think that really uh, the goal for me is just utilizing it's not to go and make a bunch of money but really it's it's to be completely self-sufficient and to be self uh capable of um doing whatever if i want to go you know go for example like charity water they just buy uh, water rigs in africa and they just start rolling around into villages and drilling you know if i had twenty five thousand dollars in my bank account mm-hmm. tomorrow um i could do it and I could hire a crew and I could essentially be a mobile drilling, you know, operation. And, and, you know, there's a lot of flexibility to do these types of things. Um, and I think that, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with, for example, um, when you're uh, a nonprofit and you're going for grants or if you're um, a social business or whatever, you know, you always have responsibility to, you know, whatever the grant agenda is or the people that are dishing out that money. And I think that that's been wonderful because we've done some amazing things through our partner that has funded some of our, um, some of our programs. But at the same time, I, w- I also want the flexibility to just be able to try things on my own without having any responsibility to an outcome just to see if it will work. So that's why I really want to, you know, build passive income. That's awesome. Very cool. And so, where can people actually reach out to connect with you and actually support this um, this crowdfunding campaign right now? And how long is it going for? Uh, we have fourteen, or I think thirteen or fourteen days left. Um, and uh, our uh, URL actually redirects directly to the campaign, and so you can find us um, just by going to our our URL, which is uh, wzuda.organic. And you spell Zuda, Z-U-D-D-H-A. And then dot .organic is a, a verified USDA organic extension. Perfect. Yeah, I just took some notes on there. We'll make sure that's linked up in the show notes. And this should go live pretty soon. So when people are listening to this, um, definitely check it out. Go check out Zuda Organic um, anyway, no matter what. But definitely check it out if you want to get involved in that crowdfunding campaign. And uh, I'm looking forward to supporting it myself after this call. But uh, beyond that, Tyson, tell me um, any bits of advice for somebody maybe who hears your story, is really compelled by it, loves the idea of, of the social a social entrepreneurship aspect to what you're doing. Any piece of advice for him or her? Yeah, I think the most important thing is that um, we're a culture that asks for permission a lot and uh, we don't even realize that we do it. Um, we're constantly apologizing for our behaviors and asking our parents and friends and family and society whether or not we can go um, start these businesses and take these trips. And I think that the most important thing that I've learned is that uh, you're going to disappoint society and your family and your friends to start an entrepreneurial venture and or travel. However, if you feel the calling for it, make it happen. But don't ask for permission because there's always going to be roadblocks if you do it. Yep, I love that. Do I will curious. That was going to be my last question, but I'm just curious now. Have you ever gotten um, asked like, when are you going to get a real job? And I ask because I've gotten that a couple times from my dad, who I feel like at this point I feel like I've actually done a good job of actually building something legitimate and it's thriving and growing. And I still get that question uh, to like go get a conventional job, which I, it cracks me up and I, I appreciate because I know where he's coming from. But I'm just curious if you've ever had something like that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I, uh, similarly, I mean, my dad's, 
he also is an entrepreneur and he would of course love for me to take over his business. Um, and, uh, you know, at this stage he realizes that that's not my passion. Um, and that I'm going to follow my passion, but I, I have gotten that from, you know, friends and family and, uh, from strangers. And, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's always one of those things where, uh, when they start to understand that I'm, I'm doing what makes me passionate. So then they, they kind of back off on it regardless of, of the, of the financial, uh, ebbs and flows of entrepreneurship. <laughs> yeah, totally. Cool. Well, Tyson, I really appreciate having you on, man. Um, it's always great talking to you. I'm very excited for what you're working on. And I hope people who are listening to this, I know they'll they'll enjoy it. And if you guys do enjoy listening to this, go ahead and check out Zuda.organic. And if you are in Southeast Asia, go swing by Jai Coffee House. I know I missed it last time. It wasn't in our route, but I hope to get there um, in the next couple of years on our next trip to Southeast Asia. So Tyson, again, thank you so much for being on the call with us today. Yeah, thank you as well, Tom. Appreciate it. And that wraps up another broadcast of In the Trenches. If you'd like to check out the show notes, just head over to tommorcus.com slash podcast, where you'll find the latest broadcast. And if you enjoyed today's broadcast, please do me a favor and leave a rating and review on iTunes. That's the fastest, simplest, easiest way to support my creative work, and it would really mean a lot to me. As always, this is Tom Morcus, and if you're listening to this, you are the resistance.